Ask enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he, shall, he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, uh, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So let's pray together now. Father, we thank you for this day, this very, very special day in our year, a day set aside to celebrate the resurrection of your Son, of Jesus, and what that means to us as Christians, that it isn't a historical fact, that it isn't merely something that's recorded in the Bible, but that it is a truth that is recorded there and has become alive by your Holy Spirit in our lives. We know that He is risen because He lives in us. No other explanation for our lives uh, than, than that you have risen, Jesus, and live in us. And we thank you for the incredible life that we live, the power to uh, do, the will to do of your good pleasure, and the life that is found there. We pray that you would bless our time in your word now, and that you would continue to lay a foundation for our understanding of the resurrection, what you have done in being raised from the dead, and all of the worship then that will flow out of that understanding. We pray that you bless every church that honors you in this community today and all around the world. We pray that as the gospel message of Jesus' uh, death, burial, and resurrection is preached and the salvation that is found in him, that, Father, you would give power to that message and uh, an uncountable number of people would become Christians today and come to know you and enjoy the life that you have planned for them and the life that we enjoy every single day. We pray for a great harvest to occur today and a great time of sweet fellowship everywhere that your people are assembled, uh, whatever the circumstances, whatever the technology, however uh, far uh, uh, spread we are. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A false teaching had uh, gotten a foothold in the church at Corinth. And the false teaching that had gotten a foothold in a Christian church, amazingly, but in the church at Corinth was the teaching that there is no resurrection. And Paul records that earlier in the chapter as the subject that he's addressing there in verse 12. And the Apostle Paul's correction of that false teaching uh, fills literally the entire uh, chapter, uh, chapter 15 of uh, 1 Corinthians. And every section of his uh, correction of that false doctrine that is found uh, in this chapter, it provides us as Christians with invaluable insights uh, into resurrection in general, but also and particularly into the resurrection uh, of Jesus himself. In the first section of the chapter, in verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul declared that the, the gospel, God's good news of the provision of salvation 
uh, to mankind, the provision of forgiveness of sins, uh, can, in terms of trusting in His Son, it includes not only Jesus' death upon the cross, not only His burial, but also His resurrection from the dead. And then in chapters 12 through 19, Paul then listed for the church at Corinth and for us as well, all of the uh, disastrous consequences that would occur as a result of denying the reality of the resurrection. And that to deny the reality of the resurrection would be simply to uh, gut the gospel and to uh, destroy the Christian faith. And in these verses that we're studying here uh, this morning, the Apostle Paul assures us as Christians that our resurrection uh, at, at the moment of our death is as sure as Jesus' resurrection. And up to this point, uh, remember this false doctrine that there is no resurrection has gotten a foothold within the church. So as Paul is, these things are being read on that maybe Sunday night service or Sunday morning service where the church is assembled together, the letter of 1 Corinthians is being read to them when they receive it, and they get to chapter 15. Those that were holding that view as they were listening to this section of the letter being uh, read, they might very well be thinking to themselves, well, we're very thankful, very glad for Jesus' resurrection from the dead. But what good does that do me? Uh, what help is that to me uh, in the day that I die? And the Apostle Paul answers exactly that question here in these verses. And he begins by declaring, you see in verse 22, in Adam all die. And so in doing so, the Apostle Paul reminds his readers, and he reminds us as well, that the origin uh, of death and of how and when death got introduced into the human condition. And I know I speak about this in various parts of the Scriptures when we turn to them because it has a broad application. But we finally come here this morning to the actual verse uh, that I'm speaking from and seeing before our eyes. And uh, Paul here declares that this death introduced into the human condition, it's a consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve in that ancient garden of Eden. And he holds Adam particularly responsible uh, for that here. You might remember that God in the garden of Eden had declared to Adam and Eve of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for then the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And virtually the very next scene is it's recorded for us in the Bible. Adam and Eve are standing at the foot of that tree, and they then partook of that forbidden uh, fruit. And a spiritual death occurred immediately. Adam and Eve were immediately cut off from the intimacy of relationship that they had known with God up to that moment in time. But verse 22 reminds us that physical death because of that sin was then also introduced into the human existence. Well, as I say every so often, 
perhaps someone might uh, protest related to all of this and declare, wait a second, and now you've lost me. I don't believe in the Garden of Eden. I don't believe that it existed. I don't believe in Adam and Eve. I think all of it is mythology. And how in the world can I know that the Bible's record of the fall of man is true? What proof is there that I am a physical descendant of Adam, that I am fallen as the Bible teaches? And that's an excellent series of questions for a person uh, to ask. I'm sure from the vantage point of heaven, uh, God wishes that people would ask uh, more questions like that. And it may surprise you to learn that God has an answer to that question. And he answers it in four words in our passage in verse 22, when he declares, in Adam all die. And death reveals each of us to be a descendant of that ancient Adam, and death links each of us to that ancient Garden of Eden. It is like there is a great rope that is tied around our ankle, or a chain that is tied down around our ankle, and that rope goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden in that fall, and we are linked uh, to it. I want you to notice there in verse 22 that word all, and uh, as Paul uses it there, and it, it speaks of the universality of death. And so uh, you've got this uh, long, merciless uh, march of death through human history, uh, and it's testified to in the Bible but it's also testified to us on a daily basis in uh, every newspaper uh, in the world, in every city, in every corner of the world that has a newspaper, in the section of the newspaper that is known as the obituary uh, page. Uh, The witness to the universality of death, it is witnessed to by every graveyard that exists in the world. And every city, great and small, has a graveyard uh, within that city. And the, and the fact that in Adam all die, it is the message uh, of every graveyard. And what human being, I think, can claim to have uh, lived it all with eyes wide open or with a mind wide open, Uh, with any kind of intellectual rigor or honesty if they have never ever given any serious consideration in the course of their life to a graveyard. And all of the implications of that graveyard for each and every one of us. And so death is all around us and there is no denying it. Uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, not Thomas Jefferson, but rather Benjamin Franklin in in what is kind of a loose but a fair uh, paraphrase of a statement that he made in a letter to the French scientist Jean-Baptiste Leroy in 1789. Famously, uh, Benjamin Franklin said, the only thing certain in life are death and uh, taxes. And that's the truth of it. But one of the things that's interesting about watching it in our culture, in the United States of America, is that our culture is one that does everything that it can to hide the reality of death uh, from us. And uh, we take dead bodies, 
and uh, we deliver them to certain buildings in town. They're called mortuaries. And we deliver them by way of certain vehicles known uh, as hearses. And then when the service is conducted for the person that has died, uh, the service is conducted in rather hushed tones. Uh, we've got to stay, there's a sense of, of reverence related to the tone of such a service, but it's almost as if we need to keep all of this as quiet as we can. Uh, so that the culture can go on uh, as it's uh, hurtling forward without uh, being inconvenienced by being reminded of this thing called uh, death. And in our culture, everything is out of sight, out of mind. In other cultures in the world, and sometimes we look down on other cultures, and uh, cultures that we would consider to be much more primitive uh, than, than our culture, uh, they deal with death much more honestly, and they deal with death a lot more uh, openly uh, than we do, and I think much more maturely. For example, the body of someone who dies in a village is uh, then carried, whether in a casket or in, on some kind of a uh, something that they're laid out on, and a march begins through the entire village from the site of, of the home of the deceased. And, and they go up and down all of the streets on their way to the cemetery where the person is going to be buried. And, uh, and the whole village then uh, sometimes will join them in that procession to uh, the cemetery. But there's no hiding of the fact of death within uh, the culture. There's no practical denial of the reality of death. And in uh, that kind of a place, a person would be forced to come to grips with this thing called death at a very, very uh, early age. I remember being in India one time, and uh, we were in uh, some section of it that was near the Ganges River. And we were sitting in a park uh, awaiting uh, movement to where we were headed, and we saw these four young men, and they were carrying a body uh, between the four of them uh, through this park that we were in. And somebody asked one of our Indian brothers there, uh, what is going on? And they said, well, uh, that person has died, and they're proceeding to take him and to throw his body into the Ganges River. And so there's this uh, 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 familiarity uh, with, with death in a culture uh, like that. In the United States, when something makes us uncomfortable or we don't want to face the reality of it, uh, we're prone to just rename it. So we hand it over to the wordsmiths and we say, come up with some kind of terminology related to this that we can refer to this event, uh, but refer to it in a way that keeps it uh, somehow safely distant uh, from us and uh, so that it isn't any kind of a threat to us or isn't a reminder to us of, of his existence. And I've mentioned before, but I remember several years ago, it's the classic illustration, and I was reading an article in a newspaper and, uh, and the article in the newspaper declared that a particular hospital in, in a particular city 
uh, had determined that the word death was no longer to be used in that hospital. That death from that moment forward was going to be referred to as a negative patient outcome. Uh, As if somehow that's a word of comfort uh, or some help in the face of death. So the hospital could uh, gladly boast in the fact that nobody ever really dies in this hospital, but we do have our occasional negative patient uh, outcome. But this is characteristic of our culture, maybe not to that extreme, but to a very large degree. But humanly speaking, death is inescapable. And death stalks each and every one of us from the moment of our conception, from the moment of our birth, from the moment of of our very first breath, and it is an enemy to every single human being. And Paul makes that clear in verse 26. He declares that death is an enemy to us. And here you have this enemy, it waits, it's very, very patient. Uh, It knows that in every life, no matter how many vitamins we take, no matter how much we exercise, no matter how much we watch our diet, it is going to come to claim uh, each and every one of us. And so death is a sure thing. You say, thank you very much. I think I want to go stream another service uh, from another church. Uh, This is kind of a, a, a dark Uh, uh, Resurrection Sunday service. But thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us there. And you notice that he went on to write at the end of verse 22. He said, even so, in Christ all shall be made alive. And the point that the Apostle Paul is making is this, that yes, death is as sure as anything can be in life. It is an undeniable reality in the human existence. But for the Christian, our resurrection is just as sure. In fact, Paul declares here, and the great point that he's making here, is that our resurrection is just as sure as Jesus' resurrection. And you notice there in verse 23 that Paul describes Jesus as the first fruits. And it's an Old Testament reference that's designed to really communicate something important to us uh, as uh, Christians. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, the Lord instituted a feast known as the Feast of First Fruits with Moses and the children of Israel. And the characteristics of the Feast of, uh, the feast of First Fruits is very, very interesting. Uh, In the spring of the year, right before the barley harvest, the first portion of the harvest was to be offered to the Lord in the form of a sheaf. They would cut down a small amount of the barley in the corner of the field. It would be put in the form of a sheaf, and then it would be raised up before the Lord. It would be waved before the Lord as an expression of thanksgiving. And it was done in order to communicate that this sheaf of grain was just the start of something big. Uh, It was just the start of an even greater harvest that would follow it, and all of it due to the grace of God. And the date given by God for the celebration of the Feast of First Fruits is very significant. 
God declared that it was to occur on the day after uh, the Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That is the second day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this would have been uh, the 16th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar. And so let me translate it a little bit for you here. So in accordance with the Jewish religious calendar, you have the Passover, uh, which uh, represents Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins. That occurred two days earlier on the 14th. And then the first Sabbath, the next day, the Saturday, uh, was on the 15th, and that always began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then the second day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, was Sunday the 16th. And it was on Sunday the 16th that they were to celebrate break the uh, Feast of First Fruits. And what the Feast of First Fruits speaks of Jesus, this feast speaks of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And it communicates, and what Paul is wanting us to be aware of here, is that just as this Feast of First Fruits was celebrated on the Sunday following the Passover, so too Jesus was resurrected from the dead on the Sunday following the Passover. And in our Bible passage, the Apostle Paul uses this very language to describe uh, Paul's resurrection uh, in his church here, uh, his letter to the church at Corinth. Verse 20 again, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen. And the point that the Holy Spirit is making through Paul was that just as that sheaf of wheat uh, was offered to God in the feast of first fruits would be followed then by a great harvest, so too Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the guarantee of our resurrection from the dead. That just as the, the first fruits were a sign of the physical harvest to come, the resurrection of Jesus was a sign that his resurrection was just the very first part of a much larger spiritual harvest uh, of people to come who would leave death as empty-handed as Jesus did. And you notice there in verse 23, Paul speaks of an order in all of this. Jesus was the first fruits. He was the first to die and rise from the dead, never to die again, uh, to live in the power of an endless life and risen with a glorified body. And then in the very same breath, the Apostle Paul then mentions those who are Christ's at his coming. He speaks of us as Christians. In other words, though we may physically die as Christians, in that moment of physical death, we will at the same time be resurrected, uh, so to speak. And uh, that is, we will rise from the dead instantly into a new glorified body made for eternity, never to die again. 
And for some Christians, an entire generation of Christians, that is going to happen at the rapture of the church as it's spoken about in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, or chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. But there will be uh, this one generation that will never taste death at all. They'll be just taken right from this life into the fullness of everlasting life by way of the rapture. But every other Christian in history, uh, this will occur, this great miracle of resurrection will occur when Christ comes to us individually at the time of our physical death. Let me read a, a scripture to you as Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, this body is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this, that is in this body, this tent, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, uh, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, uh, yes, uh, well-pleased, Paul says, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And in a technical sense, uh, it is very true that no Christian uh, ever dies. You remember Jesus spoke to Martha uh, at the scene of the death of Lazarus, her, her uh, brother. And Jesus spoke to her and said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, uh, he shall live. Speaking of Lazarus. And then he declares concerning all of us who are still alive. He said, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That's the declaration that Jesus made to Martha. And then he said, uh, believest thou this. Christians never die, but we do move. We never cease to exist, not even for a moment. Our relationship with God, and this is such a source of peace to me because I'm so dependent upon my relationship with God now, our relationship with God will never cease, not for a split second, uh, not for a nano uh, uh, second. And uh, we will just simply move out of this physical body into a new body made for heaven, a body that is now made for eternity. And D.L. Moody famously uh, captured it just perfectly when he wrote and he said, someday you'll read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. That's a proper understanding uh, of the resurrection and its implications for us so personally as Christians. That's the truth. To be absent from the body is to be present uh, with the Lord. 
And then uh, D.L. Moody went on to say in that same quote, he said, I uh, shall have gone up higher. That is all. Out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his, that is Jesus' glorious body. And here Paul is telling us that the two resurrections that he's talking about here, Christ's resurrection and our resurrection, they stand together. Uh, They cannot be uh, separated. And that our resurrection is as sure as his resurrection, and that is as sure as it can get. And it is to be a source of great peace, of great joy uh, for each and every one of us. And so there is the answer to the question where someone might be thinking, even as a Christian, as some were in the church at Corinth, I'm glad and thankful that Jesus defeated and he conquered death as evidenced in his resurrection. But what does that have to do with my dilemma? Uh, I'm still uh, stuck unless there's a way that Jesus is able to provide his victory with me. And how in the world uh, can we make Jesus' victory over death, our victory over death? Paul tells us, right in the passage, by being as he uh, describes it in verse 22, by being in Christ. In verse 23, by belonging to Christ. These are phrases that speak uh, to the Christian, to the person who has repented of their sin and turned to God and put our trust in Jesus uh, uh, as our Savior for the forgiveness of sins, made Him our our uh, Lord, and, uh, and on that moment that we have done that, believed Him to be God's Savior, and to be uh, 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 the salvation that is acceptable I- in heaven, we were born again by the Holy Spirit, now in Christ, now belonging to Christ, and if you are a Christian, of course you've already done that, and this victory is yours. Well, While Paul is on the subject of death, uh, he fills us in on what is going to uh, ultimately happen to this enemy of ours called uh, death. What is the future of death? And he describes it there in uh, verses 24 through uh, 28. And so we've already learned that death has been defeated through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And here we learn that death will one day be entirely uh, destroyed, completely destroyed. In verse 26, uh, as Paul declares uh, there, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And this passage speaks of uh, events that are going to follow what is known as the thousand-year reign of Christ, what is known as his millennial reign, his millennial kingdom. And the sequence of future events uh, for us, there won't be a test on it, but it helps us get our bearings in terms of what Paul is speaking to us about here, in terms of going forward uh, to the, from where we are right now to the moment that death is destroyed. The progression, progression biblically is this in terms of future events, 
There'll be the rapture of the church when Jesus returns to take the church or Christians uh, into heaven prior to the tribulation. That'll then be followed by the seven-year tribulation period. Uh, Then there will be the second coming of Christ. Jesus will then establish his thousand-year reign on the earth. At the end of the thousand years, uh, Satan will be loosed once again to draw the inhabitants of the world who are interested, and many will be interested, into a final rebellion against God. That rebellion will be put down, and then Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, uh, will be cast into the eternal lake of fire, as Revelation 20 brings it out. There will then be a judgment of the righteous and the unsaved at the white throne, uh, judgment of, of, uh, of Christ, the unrighteous and the unsaved. Again, that's uh, declared in Revelation chapter 20. And then we're told in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, the very thing that Paul refers to here when death and Hades are going to be cast into the lake of fire. And John put it this way, Revelation twenty fourteen. then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And at that particular point in time in human history, there will be no more death. People will be permanently and undyingly fixed Uh, into the eternity that we have chosen uh, for ourselves. And then Jesus, having put an end to all rebellion against God's rule uh, and uh, and, uh, God's authority and His power, as He describes it there in verse 24, He will then deliver the world to the Father. And then we're told uh, elsewhere that this present heaven and this present earth will be destroyed. Uh, Peter tells us that it will melt with a fervent heat. It will give way to a new heavens and a new earth uh, wherein righteousness dwells. In other words, it will be a place that will never be spoiled or ruined by sin or ruined by uh, rebellion against God any longer. Uh, John in the Revelation, he brings forth the same thing. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was uh, no more sea. And the main focus of all of this, and the reason that Paul brings all of this up, and uh, we needn't uh, apologize for him, or uh, forgive him for being so deeply uh, theological uh, in his beliefs, the foundation for his Christian life. uh, But the reason he uh, reminds us of of all of this and the focus of what he's bringing out here in, in verse 26 is to remind us of what will ultimately happen to death itself. Again, look at verse 26. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, you stop and think about that, where it is that uh, you're seated. Hopefully, you're not on a treadmill. But think about where it is that you are seated right now and, and try to imagine an existence in which there is no death. That enemy is gone. And you, and you think about uh, the, the, the absolute pain 
and heartache and heartbreak that death has brought into the human existence. And not even supremely for the person who dies, as tragic as that is. But for all of the husbands, the wives, the children, the parents, the loved ones, the friends that then outlive the death of of a loved one. And to think about what it will be like for death and all of the horror that it is introduced into the human condition that one day it will cease to exist. It will be completely destroyed. And it's a cause for celebration and cause for a hallelujah wherever it is that we're seated. And to say one day good riddance to it and eternity that will be uh, uninterrupted by death. And so how unspeakably, indescribably wonderful it is to realize that here the Apostle Paul, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is telling us that uh, the two resurrections, Christ's resurrection and our resurrection, they stand together. And again, to be reminded that our resurrection one day is as sure as Jesus' resurrection. And yes, death is real. It has not yet been destroyed, but it has been defeated. And whenever we think of this enemy called death, uh, if and when it comes close, if we're not a part of that generation who is going to experience the rapture of the church, then we can say in the face of death, you are real, but you will not have the final say in my life, resurrection will be the final word concerning me. You will merely usher me into the very presence of heaven in all of its glory. And what a wonderful thing Jesus has done for us in defeating death and then demonstrating that victory in his resurrection and then providing a way for his victory over death to become ours. It's a defeated enemy for us. I want to close this morning by speaking for a moment to any of you that are watching that might not yet be a Christian. The writer of the book of Hebrews in, in, uh, in the Bible, he writes in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 15 of the bondage of the fear of death that is in mankind. I remember before I became a Christian, I was very well aware of death. Uh, Before I became a Christian, I thought about the big questions in life. And uh, and it looked like death uh, was getting just about everybody that I could see sooner or later. And uh, I got on the uh, Save Your Life diet with Adele Davis, and Jim Fix had the book on running, and I was running, and some of you remember that age and time, and and I wasn't obsessed with it, but I, I knew it was an enemy, and I knew it was approaching, and I knew I wanted to put death off as far as, as I, I, I could possibly do so. And there is that bondage of the fear uh, of death. And one of the things that the coronavirus pandemic has really brought to the forefront for everyone in the world to see 
is mankind's absolute terror of death and the lengths that we will go to in order to avoid it. Stocking up on food, stocking up on food that we don't need so often, uh, uh, avoiding exposure to the virus, uh, stocking up on vitamins and medications. Anytime there's a newscast on television or something's put in the paper that this might be something, you know, a B vitamin shot or uh, this particular medication or that over-the-counter this, immediately uh, within an hour you can try and find it at the store or find it online and it's gone. Uh, people are so... Uh, aware of what might be additional hedge against death in the middle of this, this pan, pandemic. And all of that, of course, is, is okay and good within reason. But what is curious in all of this to me is that so often the fear of death in a person's life never then translates into any kind of actual preparation for death itself. We prepare mightily for the avoidance of death and think we're prepared for death. But there's no actual preparation for the event of, of death. We all know it's coming. And yet a person can live their three score and ten years of life and never take in this culture and the distractions of this culture and never take even one single hour in the course of all of those years to soberly ask and to seek the answers to questions like this. Why do people die? Why does death exist at all? What's the explanation for its origin? What happens after death? Am I prepared for death? What must I do to be prepared for death? And then to ask ourselves, who in the world is even asking these kind of questions, let alone providing an answer to those questions, and then much less providing a victory over death, an antidote to death. And the answer is, to that question, is in a word, Jesus. And again, as he declared concerning himself to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And then for us who are alive and listening right now, here is his word to us. And whoever lives, that's you, and believes in me, shall never die. That is the solution to all of it. That is his offer to you personally this morning. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And the victory over death, the guarantee of resurrection unto life, among many, many other things, is made yours by simply trusting in Jesus this morning for the forgiveness of your sin, turning from your sin, turning from your self-will, 
and making Him your Savior, making Him your Lord uh, this morning, and just coming to Him and saying, uh, God, I believe your assessment of me as a sinner, and I believe that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. And I sense that now that life is all about a relationship with you. But I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent your son into the world to die on that cross as the full and satisfactory payment for my sins, and that he was buried and he rose again on the third day. And I believe that he is the Savior and that is the salvation that pleases you. And so as an act of my will, I trust in him today for the forgiveness of my sins. And when you do that, a great miracle will occur in your life, the greatest miracle that anyone can experience. And that is the person of the Holy Spirit will come into your life at your invitation in praying that prayer, and you will now be born again by the Holy Spirit and now enter into a relationship with God that will go on forever and ever and will never cease, even in the moment of death. And Jesus' victory over death will become yours. And now is the time to take death seriously. Instead of, and instead of dealing with it superficially, uh, as we're prone to do, uh, as I was prone to do, uh, and, and dealing with it in that way through fear, or trying to run away from it, or, or attempting to ignore it. Today is the day to address this subject of death, the reality of death, the enemy of death, and to meet it head on by receiving God's provision of a victory over it in His Son and everlasting life. And you can ask for that victory in giving your life uh, this morning to Jesus wherever it is that you are seated or wherever it is that you are hearing this. What a great thing that has been lifted off of our lives as Christians this removal of this thing called the fear of death. I remember a pastor, very famous pastor, if I mentioned his name, you would know him. But I was at a pastor's conference one time, and, uh, and I thought in a moment of, of great candor and great honesty, he was talking about death, and he said, uh, I'm not afraid of death, I'm afraid of dying. And, uh, and I laughed at that, and uh, we all laughed at that because they're two entirely different things. Death is one thing. The means by which we die, that's another thing. Nobody's excited about that. But victory, but death as an enemy, death is in, in that moment at the end of whatever it is that brings death our way, uh, that, that great enemy uh, of death itself has been uh, conquered in our lives. And we don't have to wonder, we don't have to question what will happen in that moment. And I don't know about you, but that was a great thing to be lifted off of someone like me and off of a noggin like I have that seems to never stop thinking about things. 
and to be able now to live and walk and enjoy life free from the bondage of the fear of death. So many reasons to be thankful and to celebrate in terms of Jesus' resurrection from the dead for us as Christians, and this is just one more. I'd like us to just close now in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for our Savior, even as we have sung, for your provision to us in Him. And we thank you for this incredible victory that you have provided over this enemy that is an enemy of every single one of us. And you have lifted this great weight upon our shoulders and upon our minds and upon our hearts and and delivered us from a life of uh, trying to outrun it or to outhealth it or to ignore it, but to face it head on and to receive your victory. And we thank you again for this victory. We thank you this morning for this truth that your Holy Spirit gave to the Apostle Paul to put on the printed page so that it would be imparted to our hearts and minds and made a rich, meaningful, uh, change-making part of our, our Christian lives. And that is that our resurrection is as sure as Jesus' resurrection and that that is as sure as it can be made. We bless you. We praise you from this place, this big old room that we're in, and every living room and every kitchen and every den and every, every, every place that we are united together by your Holy Spirit and by our salvation and by your word and by this service this morning, we say hallelujah, praise the Lord for how good you have been to us, Father, in our Savior. And we thank you in his name, in Jesus' name, amen.